0: All right, open your Bibles with me, please, to Psalm 103, and get a sense of what's going on in this particular psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here's a wonderful passage, a beautiful psalm of David that begins and ends The exact same way. Bless the Lord, O my soul. From beginning to end, King David is clearly urging himself to give glory, honor, and praise to the Lord God. Even though David was a man after God's own heart, he had to command himself to extol the Lord. The goodness and greatness of the ever-present yet invisible God. He had to command himself in verse 2 to not forget all of God's benefits. In Psalm 103, David is taking time to bless God for blessings given. After introducing us to this endeavor in verses 1 and 2, David lists in verses 3 through 18 all of those benefits that he's received Those acts of grace, those insights into God's character, those expressions of mercy that he and his people have received from the hand of God. It's just as Spurgeon states about this psalm, David selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love. He threads them on the string of memory and hangs them about the neck of gratitude. At the end of the psalm in verses 19 through 22, David invites the entire created world, angels, ministers, inanimate works, and his own soul once again to praise the king of the universe for all the royal gifts freely bestowed over all he rules. Now, we see in Psalm 103 poetry of praise, and it's really well organized and harmonious It's deep and insightful. It's calming and concise. We must remember, however, that this poetry is not so much a spontaneous expression of praise as it is a carefully crafted ode to God. As verses 1 and 2 make abundantly clear, it took David conscious effort to worship in this way. He had to remind himself that God is holy or unique and therefore worthy of our best accolades and heartfelt devotion. In other words, the Lord God is not to be saluted in a casual way. God is to be honored with all that is within us, with conscious, wholehearted effort. G. Campbell Morgan wrote these words about the introduction to the psalm in verses 1 and 2. He said, these opening words show us that worship is not involuntary. It is not automatic. It calls for the coordination of our powers. The sanctuary is not a lounge. It's not a place of relaxation, though I hope you're comfortable today. We should enter it with all the powers of personality arrested, arranged, and dedicated to God. Then we may render a service of praise that is worthy and acceptable. What Morgan was saying is that Psalm 103 exemplifies for us an active effort in worshiping God. I don't know about you, but I often adopt a passive mentality toward worship. And thus, I sit around and long for God's Spirit to stir my soul so that I will have a spontaneous rush of gratitude toward the Lord Jesus. I notice, however, that those rarely come. In fact, when I adopt this posture, I rarely find time to either praise God or think about God, let alone thank him. I end up fixated or stuck on the anxieties of life and the pressures of this world. Never able to look beyond those things and give glory to God. It's as if the gas pedal of my soul is stuck, and it's stuck on worry and stress, and I get angry with God for not allowing my day to run smoothly while I'm accelerating down the road of anxiety. I complain that God seems distant and that the interventions that I so wish would dramatically turn around my life just don't come. What's the problem? I've abandoned the oil of conscious praise that will release the spring of gratitude toward God. My soul needs to get the accelerator unstuck from stress and lubricated toward praise of God. Are we not all... Loathe at times to stir our spirits to worship God. The triune God, even though the pressures of our lives are increasingly telling us we've got to stop and pray and praise. We know that, he's the, that the Lord Jesus is the only true source of help in times of need, and yet we go on without acknowledging him. As we approach this scripture this morning, I'd like us to ask ourselves if we're actively engaged in our lives in praising God. Psalm 103 challenges you and me to give all that we have to blessing God for all of his benefits. If the clarion call to wholehearted praise, however, seems too high for you or for me, then let's get together and turn our eyes away from ourselves and focus on the very thing that this psalm focuses on, the benefits that God has already given. Let's bless God for benefits given and lose ourselves in wonder and praise to God. So what are these benefits? Let's meditate on them together. Let's just enter in to the soul thoughts of David and see if we can come out on the other side with all creation blessing God. Well, the first thing he does in verses 3 through 6 is he says, Praise God for applying his redemptive work to me. He personalizes the work of God toward him. He meditates on what has God done for me personally. So you should praise God for applying his redemptive work to you. Notice verse 3. God forgives all your iniquity who is God God heals all your diseases verse 4 God redeems your life from the pit God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy God satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles Have you ever started your pray, your, your prayer with I oh God, I am so tired. I am so weak. I, 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 13 times I, God. Have you found out about me, God? David doesn't pray that way. David starts with, God, you did this for me. You did this for me. You did this. You did this. You did this. You, 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 you. You know, that's a paradigm changer right there. You start with God. David's is lecturing his own soul here. And he's telling his own soul in verse 3 that even though he's a sinful man who committed terrible adultery and conspired to kill Bathsheba's husband, that God has forgiven me of all iniquity. Imagine David turning to God and saying, you have forgiven All of my iniquity. Soul, God has forgiven you. Every twisted tendency that kept creeping up in David's life, every stubborn habit that everyone else in his family eventually could see and name, every complaining word, every half-hearted attitude in David's life fell within the scope of God's cleansing. And the same acts and attitudes of rebellion in your life and mine fall within the same scope of God's forgiveness. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. 1 John one seven, Hebrews 9.26 Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 7.27 says Jesus has no need like Levitical high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Your sins and my sins were nailed to the cross and punished in one fell swoop. Jesus' bloody sacrifice is a finished atonement that fully reconciles the soul to God. In one wrath-atoning act, wrath-satisfying act, Christ did all the work necessary to absorb all of God's anger against our sins. And Jesus cried, It is finished. When Jesus died, the work of atoning for our sins was complete. You don't have to add anything. It's done. Thus, sinners washed in the blood of the sacrifice lose not one, but all their guilty stains. If we could only grasp 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sins. Yeah, If you have come to Jesus for forgiveness, if you've ever been washed in that blood, all your sins are blotted out. According to Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law because he became a curse in your place. He was cursed when he was hung upon a tree, when he was hanged upon a tree. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 2.13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God hath made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that was opposed to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, to the cross here's the starting place for praise you have no other place to go as you stand before God with a sense of all your sinfulness and unworthiness just start at the cross look at the awful tree and see what Isaiah 53 5 states he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities the chastisement that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes, we are healed. Surely it's this kind of health to the soul, and health to the bones type of forgiveness that David had in mind in Psalm 103. Just look down at verse four or at the end of verse three and notice what he follows it up with. God forgives all your iniquity. God heals all your diseases. David parallels the concept of forgiveness of sin with the healing of disease. In the Old Testament world, sin and disease were very closely linked in the Israelites' minds. Sin was often, though not always, and that's an important, though not always, to recognize, sin and disease were viewed in a cause-and-effect relationship. The two were linked, linked closely in the Israelites' worldview. If you would go back to Exodus fifteen twenty-six, soon after the Lord redeemed the Israelites and ushered them safely across the Red Sea, he told his people, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer a negative corollary to that passage is in Deuteronomy 28:15 through 22 where there are covenant curses given to the Israelites as a nation for not obeying God in the future God says in Deuteronomy 28:15 to 22 if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will send curses, confusion, frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you've forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with the drought and with the blight and with the mildew. Those are very serious warnings to the nation Israel as part of their national constitution. The redeemed people of Israel who came across the Red Sea, if they turned their backs on God as a nation, their society was going to suffer horrifically. The Old Testament was clear. That the wages of their sin would literally be death. Thanks be to God, then, that we know that the cure for this kind of curse, the curse that brings death, is in the gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Eternal life, freedom from the, the curse is found in Jesus. There's healing in his wings. That doesn't mean that every Christian is going to walk around healthy all the time. But what it does mean is that God is not frowning on you, even if for a while you're suffering sickness in this world. Behind a frowning providence, God is hiding a smiling face. Dear Christian, God has not spared you a premature death to this point for no reason can you not count a hundred or many more small illnesses that you have had and then been cured of when was the last time you thanked god that you don't have covid right now when was the last time that you thank god that you don't have pneumonia that you don't have a sore throat today i've been sick a million times i've had a heart attack I forget to thank God that I'm not having one today. And yet God's seen me through these things. And he's seen you through a million things too. And somehow we are bothered. That God just doesn't care about my day at work. And he's saved us from destruction thousands of times physically. Look at the next verse in Psalm 103. It kind of picks up on this theme. Verse 4, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The first line of Psalm 103.4 is really talking about the grave. David says, I haven't been brought down to the grave. I've been delivered, oftentimes at great price, to God and the people that he has used but I've been delivered. Essentially, David praises God that his life has not been consumed or destroyed. God's mercies have been new to him every morning during peace and during the many battles that he fought. During seasons of obedience and rebellion, somehow, David was still that king, still alive on earth when he wrote this. The Lord spared David's life. He did not get what he deserved as a sinner. Instead of facing the judgment of eternal punishment do every child of wrath, David was getting the royal treatment, quite literally. And you'll notice that that's exactly what the end of verse 4 says. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. David, God has redeemed you from the grave. He's redeemed you from destruction. He's delivered you and he's crowned you you get treated as the royal son with this diadem of loving kindness and mercy it's not that god didn't just not condemn you he puts you in the position of favor you've gone from the child of wrath to the child of the king and you are treated with absolute love and steadfast faithfulness from god God isn't just not angry with you. He loves you steadfastly. Has not God done that for you? Ephesians 2 1 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Having our course in this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in those sons of disobedience. And we were following the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in that lowly position, in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that when God looks at you, he looks at you through his son and loves you with the same love that he has for his only begotten son. He puts on Jesus-tinted glasses and favors you. What complaint could I have today? Oh, to bask in that love. These words tell us that we have been treated like David, not only spared from destruction, but treated as royal sons. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The notes of personal praise for David continue in verse 5. David says to himself, God satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The first line is telling us that God makes life worth living by providing the good things that our hearts and bodies need. He brings you the good, whatever that good is for you, whatever will benefit you in becoming like Christ. He brings true good into our lives. You know, like children, we oftentimes crave Skittles and Icy Pops, at least my children do. We mistakenly want the vanities that can't nourish our souls. But God doesn't set before us that which is not substantive. He sets before us his word, his fellowship, his people, his providential care, his daily provisions, his character-building trials, his strength for us to feed upon. And what is the result of being fed with such bread from heaven, from, with Christ himself? Our youth and our vitality are renewed, similar to the degree to which an eagle expresses his own vitality eagles are some of the biggest birds on the planet nonetheless they're extremely fast unlike an ostrich a golden eagle can fly up to 200 miles per hour a bald eagle 99 miles per hour eagles sit at the top of the food chain scared of no predators they can swoop down and quickly attach any other animal with their sharp talons They have amazing vision, able to see almost three kilometers away. In other words, the eagle is unmatched, a symbol of majestic strength and buoyant living. And David says that God has satisfied him with everything necessary to give him abundant eagle-like life and vitality as well. Jesus said the same thing in John 10.10. I suppose you're studying the Gospel of John. I have come that people may have life and have it abundantly, buoyed up over all the trials of life with the fullness of God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in three fourteen and 19 strikes a similar note. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God it is God's desire for every saint to be satisfied with the fullness of God through the spirit saturating the inner man with the love of Christ this is sanctification and this is the personal work that God is doing in you to make you eagle-like Vibrant and strong, more than a conqueror able to soar over life's troubles. There's a reason for praise in that kind of work. Verse 6 through 18 starts a whole new section of this psalm. It's as if God, David broadens out from priming the pump of praise from his personal life. And he says, now I'm going to look at, at the nation Israel. And I just want to recount what God has done for us and his people. So if you're keeping track of points today, it's that secondly, we should praise God for revealing his covenantal ways among all his people. You praise God for his redemptive work to you personally, but then broaden out to praise God for what he's doing in his covenantal love toward all his people. You'll notice in verses 6 and 7 that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And I think verse 7 is kind of related to verse 6 in that it's, it's telling you how David knows that God helps the oppressed. David says, just look at what he did for our nation. When did God help the nation of Israel when it was oppressed? If you think back to Exodus uh, chapters 1 and 2, you remember that the Israelites were slaving away for the pharaohs having to make bricks. And God remembered his covenant with Abram, and he had mercy on those people. Pharaoh was ruthlessly making their lives hard with bondage, we're told in one thirteen in Exodus. And then God raised up a deliverer, Moses. And God made the angel of death to strike the Egyptians, but he spared the blood-washed Israelites. And with great power, he led Israel across the Red Sea to freedom, and they were no longer slaves, thanks to the Passover lamb and the power of God. God put his power on display in sending plagues on Pharaoh. God put his righteous moral character and ethical policies on display when he gave Israel the law. God was working from 1446 when he gave the Ten Commandments after the crossing of the Red Sea until the time of David in 1000 B.C. for 400 years to show his ways to the nation of Israel. God was keeping covenant with them. He was helping them in the wilderness, providing manna for their daily needs. God was giving them victories and conquest in the land of Canaan in the days of Joshua. He was turning them back to himself every time they would backslide and then slide again and then slide again and come to him and cry out again and again in the book of Judges. And he was there for them, raising up yet another deliverer despite their sin. The prophet Samuel saw God appoint the first king and then David after Saul. God was giving the people what they needed and giving them leadership because he loved them. God showed the Israelites for 400 years from Moses to David how he relates with his people. He redeems, he provides, he teaches, he commands, he conquers, he chastens, he forgives, he leads. He does everything for his people because he wants people to see him as their everything. The only thing that they really need. and God wants us to see the same thing. The new covenant people see in Jesus all that we need. He's our everything. He's sufficient, according to history, for every need that his people have. What's he done to establish this congregation? What's he done to lead here, to grow people here, to help Tri-County. It's easy to forget, isn't it? You get caught up in 2021 and you forget, oh yeah, I remember in 2016. Oh yeah, I remember in 2008. Oh yeah, I remember when Joe first came here. Oh yeah! It'd be great to remember all that in front of God and say, thank you, God, for taking care of us as your people. Verses 8 and 9. Go on to praise the character qualities of God. And I'm going to really roll through this because I know I got to move. This psalm is just so rich. Verses 8 and 9, look at these character qualities. The Lord is merciful, He is gracious, He is slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love. Four positive things, all of them recounted for us from Exodus 34 10, right after the Israelites committed golden calf idolatry and that's when God says and I want you to know I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm slow to anger and I am abounding in my faithful love and covenant loyalty to you just at the time you would think he would say and you guys have to go God says I am here ready willing and planning on forgiving just the opposite of what we think when we sin, isn't it? So after those positive things in verse 8, verse 9, the poet just says, well, let me think about this from a negative standpoint. God does not always chasten or chide. He does not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities because those are the very things we think God does. And it's like David picks his soul up and he says, God doesn't do this. God, you don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You are worthy of praise because what you don't do. When was the last time you thanked God for what he does not do? Verse 10, verse 11 rather, and 12 and 13. It's as if David wants to get this concrete in our minds. So he says, okay, let me give you some examples. I got to go to comparison now. Let's use some similes, those like or as phrases. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Can you see that kind of love? It's as high as the heaven. Look at the clouds today. Look at the sky today. And you tell me, how far is it up there? Somebody says, oh, let me Google that. (laughs) Yeah, you can probably Google it, but that's not the point of the poetry. The point is, you can't really measure it. I mean, in David's day, they didn't Google it. They they didn't have astronauts to figure it out. It was just, it's infinite, and that's the point. God, your love is infinite. It's beyond measure. Or right, You look at the next verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Elkhart, Indiana to Seoul, South Korea. I, I looked it up on my smartphone before church today because I, I just wanted to. 6,500 miles. I've been on that plane numerous times. I get on it, and I can assure you after 12 hours, the only thing I want to do is get off of it. It's a long way over there. And that's the point. How far have your transgressions been removed from you? Farther than you can see. God puts them out of sight. They are distanced and dismissed from your life. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Another analogy, another comparison. Well, if you can't handle the fact that God's love is infinite and his forgiveness is total, well, let's bring it down to personal terms. He's like your dad. Your dad's for you. I lost my dad about three, four years ago, and, you know, I miss him. Because there is nobody on earth who is more for me than my dad. Like I could have messed up a thousand times in the day and my dad's going to kiss me goodnight and say I love you and be really proud that I'm his son. And I do that with my own kids. You know, I mean, my kids are naughty sometimes. They do crazy stuff. Really annoying. Thoroughly irritating. And I wake up the next morning and I delight to see them it's inexplicable but I just love those little critters they're mine God loves you you're his he treats you with Abba like care well why would God do this verse 14 for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust we're just made out of dust of the ground Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. Let's just focus on man for a second, says David. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place thereof knows it no more. And then let's contrast that with God. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Here's man, temporary verses 15 and 16 just like that flower of the field that daisy's there for a little while and it's gone the wind blows over it. the season change it's gone nobody remembers it florence griffith Joyner in 1988 won three gold medals in the olympics how many of you knew that today probably one or two read about it yesterday like i did most people have forgotten 1988 hmm? Florence Griffith Joyner, fastest woman in the world, died when she was 38 of an epileptic seizure in the middle of the night. She's gone. People are so glorious for a moment, and then our lives are forgotten, either in our own generation or the next or the next or the next. But, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord... Is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. From generation to generation, God's love is permanent. It sticks, it goes on and on. Who does it go on to? To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You know, the Israelites, we just read about in Hebrews 8 today, they failed, they didn't continue. God brought judgment on him. Uh Uh-oh. What if I don't continue? Hey, I've got a lot of Israelite in me. Ah. Have you ever read Jeremiah 32, verses 39 and 40? These verses have really encouraged me before when I've been fearful that I wouldn't continue on with the Lord. Let me read them to you. Jeremiah 32, 39 to 40. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Jeremiah 31, 32, 33 are all about the new covenant that God was planning to make through the Messiah. And it's a covenant that gave us a heart that would not depart from fearing God and enjoying the steadfast love of the Lord. What a great covenant. The Lord of of love is so great and so persevering that he even takes care of making my love for him persevere. Well, the last thing is in verses 19 and 22, and it's just a bunch of what we oftentimes refer to, poetry, refer to in poetry as apostrophes, where we start talking out to someone who's not present in the room. Verse 19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. You angels, bless the Lord. David says, You hosts, you heavenly hosts, bless the Lord. You ministers, bless the Lord, you who do His will. Bless the Lord, all the works of creation, in all the places of God's dominion. Bless the Lord! Oh yeah. And while I'm shouting out to the world... To bless the God who's over all creation, not just me, not just his people, but every part of this universe, every government in the world, everything that you face every day. This God that's in total control and not in the least bit bothered by any of the stuff that we're bothered by. Any of it. That stuff that irritates you and you go home and you talk about over dinner and you just you can't believe America's doing this and that and, and that North Korea's doing this and that, and that and that your so-and-so friend said this about you. And God's in control of it. What God wants to hear is, bless the Lord. So David comes back after he shouts out to the world, and he returns to his own inner world in his own heart. And he says, David, you with your own soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. O oh my soul. Would your life and my life change this week if every day for five minutes this week we blessed? Lord, let's pray. Lord, we bless you in the sense that we salute you for all that you've done for us personally, the blood of your covenant poured out for us and applied to us, and the forgiveness of our sins. Your power among your people, generation after generation, we can all attest. You keep delivering your people. We see it in the saints around us. Praise you for your work in generation after generation, your steadfast love. You keep raising up congregations of righteous people. And Lord, thank you for just being in control of the earth today. You've got your angels. You've got your ministers. You've got all the things you've made, and you're working them all together for the good of your people. So, Lord, by your grace, we say thank you. Praise the Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen.